So there is beginning to be a rationing of care because of the overloading cases. That will result in a higher death rate. If we don't wake up and get the vaccine, this is going to happen in more and more states. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill and Fred, thanks again for taking the time to keep us abreast of developments in terms of COVID and vaccinations. And Fred, I know you've just completed some very interesting research, and I thought maybe we could start with your sharing the results of that research. Uh, Sure, David. I've been looking at the uh, rate of spread throughout the United States, and uh, the CDC uh, has a very nice map of of the degree of spread. And it turns out the entire United States now is in the red zone. There's hardly anywhere that's not bright red. A few slight yellows in Hawaii, but otherwise it's where the virus is spreading rampantly at the moment. And then I I drilled down to Florida. Obviously, I'm interested in Florida, and we've had a surge of cases in the hospital. And so I asked the question, does percentage vaccination correlate with the infection rate? You would predict that the higher the vaccination rate, the lower the infection rate. And what I found is a very strong correlation in the right direction. In fact, the R value is 0.87 which is virtually a straight line relationship. And the statistical significance was 0.005. So uh, this just verifies what we all know is that vaccination can dramatically reduce the rate of infection. And so I think the key, as I've been saying all along, is for everyone to be vaccinated. And as we talked about last week, I, I strongly support the president's call for mandatory vaccines. Bill, I know you've been looking at the data from this past week. Any particular observations, both domestically and also internationally? Yes. Going along with uh, what Fred was just saying, the the United States, North America in general, but the United States in specific, is still the the hotbed of problems around the world. The, The death rate which in some ways is, is unfortunately a better statistic than just the raw number of cases, especially when we have the heterogeneous population of vaccinated versus unvaccinated. The death rate in North America is 0.4 deaths per 100,000. In Europe, the Middle East, and Latin America, they're all in the twos, ranging between 0.2 and 0.3 deaths per 100,000 per day. And then Asia and Africa are far lower at between 0.05 and 0.08 deaths per day. So this is this is very unusual because normally it's the the Asia and then the and then the developing world that has have the highest death rates from almost any disease, but it's just almost exactly the reverse with this. Now, as far as the dynamics of the the epidemic in the United States, um, it's still it's bouncing around over the last week. It's still the in, the base rate is almost flat 
the number of cases in the U.S. Um, some states are down substantially. Florida is actually down about 25 percent total case numbers. But even there, it's extremely variable between counties around Florida. But then we still have some states in the United States that have rates that are up over 50 percent in the last week. The, on balance, we're flat throughout the United States. Looking around the rest of the world, though, um, there are uh, there are, it's very different in many places. India and Bangladesh are completely through the peaks that they've seen, and they're stable at a very low level of transmission. South Korea is only seeing about three cases per 100,000, which is considered not quite negligible, but near there. Japan had this huge peak that coincided with the Olympics. As soon as the Olympics were over, they started dropping, and they're down about a, to a quarter of what they were during the Olympics. And then Singapore, um, Hong Kong are still maintained at very low levels. And then um, Australia is having to give up on their zero COVID, and Australia is having some COVID issues, but they're, they're moving to have to push vaccinations real hard. New Zealand is the only, country, only major country in the world that is still striving for zero COVID. Is doing a pretty good job, but at the expense of almost shutting down international commerce. Bill, so that's a great overview globally what's happening. Uh, one of the questions that I think is relevant is whether you can trust the data from all of these countries or are some countries more reliable than others. My, my feeling is when you're looking at the death rates, the death rates are a little bit harder to fudge, especially the difference between North America and Africa is almost an order of magnitude. Do I think that it's truly an order of magnitude? No, but it's still, there is, there is no way that, that you know, 10 times as many deaths are occurring that are being reported. Um, it's, but it's probably, it's still, it's probably not that much. Um, China, I don't trust any of the data in China, and unfortunately, I'm trusting less of the data coming out of Hong Kong also. But again, they are still low. Japanese public health data is excellent. The Korean public health data is excellent. The Singapore health data is excellent. Um, so it, it depends on where you are in the world, certainly. So uh, yet another reminder that uh, a lot of what's occurring around the virus, vaccine, and certainly the discussions has a geopolitical lens on it as well. We're sort of mid-afternoon here on the East Coast, and uh, the FDA was going to make an announcement, was expected to make an announcement, about the third vaccine or the booster. Your thoughts about where we're going with this? It is, uh, a booster will eventually be needed. The question is, what is your threshold? Um, for younger individuals who are at lower risk of getting severe disease, the degree of protection uh, of the present vaccine, I think, is uh, acceptable. However, for those, I think, 65 or older and individuals that are immune compromised or have multiple underlying diseases, I think that's the group where a booster would really make sense because those are the patients that are ending up in the hospital, even after vaccination. It's not very common, but there is, uh, there is about a one in eight uh, individuals who are vaccinated will become infected. And those that are elderly, those that have underlying conditions are more likely to end up in the hospital.
for especially for the the older population, the immune compromised population. I'm I'm completely convinced that boosters will be beneficial because they are seeing the uh, bad out adverse effects of what happens when immunity goes down. I do have some concern, and and this is very much more Fred's area than mine, but from what I'm understanding and talking with with various colleagues, that there is a concern about a boosting prematurely with an ancestral strain vaccine, meaning a vaccine that was developed against the original original, uh, strain of COVID, not against the currently circulating Delta-predominant strains, can over-imprint the immune system with a possible dampening of response to future Delta-based lineages. So we, we all know that the, the, the vaccine companies are working on Delta-based, uh, if you want to call them boosters, really new vaccines. And so if there's anything to this idea of over-imprinting that could impact I'd be much more inclined for somebody who is at average risk, not the, not the people currently at high risk, but someone at average risk to wait on a booster until we have one that is Delta-based. Bill, I, I haven't heard about that imprinting. It's an interesting idea. I will have to investigate it. I, I'm not familiar with that as a potential concern. I can tell you that Moderna and the Pfizer have a reasonable efficacy against the Delta variant. It's, uh, they move from about 94% to somewhere in the 80% range if you've gotten both vaccines. So I'm not sure why raising of additional antibodies would lower the efficacy, but I, I, I've, never, I've not heard of that before. It's an interesting thought. But as you, but as you said, we know that the current vaccines for the for the person at average risk, kind of if you want to call it the working age person, um, the current vaccines are still working as intended. They we are getting increasing breakthroughs of cases, but not huge, not anywhere near the same degree of breakthrough on hospitalizations or deaths. Yeah, exactly. One one problem is what do you define as infection? Now, I believe in Israel, they're defining infection as a positive PCR of a nasal pharyngeal swab. Um, Others are are claiming infection if you have uh, severely symptomatic disease. I think that what's most important is uh, the hospitalization rate and the uh, intensive care unit rate and the death rate. And I think those measures, by those measures, the vaccine are still extremely effective. Yes, looking specifically at the Israeli data, um, they have about 70% of their population has had at least one vaccine, but they're seeing 100 cases per 100,000 per day. That's higher than all except four U.S. states and the highest rate of any major country in the world, despite their high rate of of not only base vaccination, but 50% of Israelis over 40 have received a booster dose. But while their case rate is very high, their hospitalizations have continued to decrease. And where does this uh, leave us? And I know I want to be careful. You're not dispensing medical advice on these podcasts, but merely giving information so people can be more informed. But where does this leave the, um, we'll call it the average person, uh, in terms of a decision to take a third vaccine or booster? Any thoughts on that? Whether younger individuals should get it, I think it will be of 
minimal benefit. It, I, I, I don't know. I've got to investigate what Bill suggested, but I don't honestly see a big downside to getting a booster from for anyone. But it's just probably not necessary. And well, you know, it's always the risk benefit ratio. And the benefit, I think, is relatively low. If you're under 65, you have no underlying disorders and you're not immune compromised. It probably won't benefit you very much. But I, I couldn't say, oh, don't do it at this point. I agree completely. What, I, what I've actually been telling the, my, my patients is over 65, it's probably a good idea. Over 65 and Pfizer, I think it's a very good idea because the, the Pfizer has, there is more evidence that the Pfizer efficacy drops the further you out are out from the uh, your initial series. If someone is in the category for whom it is currently emergency use authorized, which is people who have severe immune compromise, that's clearly, they clearly need it. For people who are of kind of the typical working age um, and have have had a, have been fully vaccinated. Why don't we just wait and see a little bit and see what kind of of if any third shot related side effects pop up that are that are are more concerning. But I think for the older population, I think it is something that is definitely should be done. Okay. And uh, I know it's a little bit too early because it was just uh, announced, but apparently there is a new study out. I don't know if you have preliminary views concerning the Moderna vaccine and uh, protection waning by 36% after 12 months. Um, any thoughts on that? Emily was just commenting on my encroaching senility. Inadvertently. Okay, so let me tee it up with a particular question, which is uh, the government was is scheduled, was scheduled to make an announcement today. Uh, about uh, official advice about a third vaccine or booster. Any thoughts on that? Okay, we'll leave that there. Okay, I had sent you guys, I don't know if you had time to look at it or whether you were otherwise aware of it, but a new study came out that said Moderna's vaccine uh, decreases in efficacy about 36% after about 12 months. So if uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the study or if you have any thoughts about that. Um, and the implications for any advice uh, to people who have been vaccinated with the Moderna vaccine. Yes, David, if it's the same study that that you're referring to that I, I read earlier this week, it was talking about the vaccine efficacy strictly in relation to symptomatic disease. The same study said that Moderna was very effectively maintaining its efficacy as it related to hospitalization and death. Good point of distinction. Bill and Fred, uh, I know you have both focused on the disinformation wars. And so uh, I wanted to highlight something that occurred earlier this week. Nicki Minaj, the uh, popular rap artist who reportedly has about 20 million plus followers in social media, sent out a tweet that seemed to resonate about her cousin and her cousin's friend back in Trinidad, who reportedly developed impotency and swollen testicles as a result of getting the COVID vaccine. And so as we think about sort of what it's going to take to get widespread acceptance and compliance with the vaccine, uh, we're constantly find ourselves up against 
uh, anecdotal information, disinformation, some people working on a for-profit model, some people just, you know, spreading and sharing things that no doubt are going to get all sorts of tweets and recognition. So I'd love to know how you think about your efforts to educate the public in light of these recurring events. It's really tragic, and uh, it's extremely irresponsible. Uh, it's extremely irresponsible. I understand that people, uh, ha- you know, hear we call them urban legends, and then they get carried on uh, these anecdotes that have no significant basis. And one of the problems, and this is going on with ivermectin as well, and it was the same thing with hydroxychloroquine. What you have to always follow is the rigorous investigations. And uh, for example, for drugs, the only way you can determine if a drug is effective is a controlled, randomized clinical trial. And for example, hydroxychloroquine, which was touted by many famous people, uh, there have now been at least 30 to 40 randomized clinical control trials, 100% of which showed no benefit. And yet uh, individuals uh, are still, some are still touting hydroxychloroquine. With regards to toxic side effects, if you give billions and millions of people uh, anything, and one of them gets a side effect that has no relationship to the vaccine, uh, it's attributed to the vaccine. And that's why you need large systematic studies that are, are run by statistical experts, by trial experts. And we have that data, and yet uh, we cannot seem to get the right people to transmit the right messages. And I think it's a huge issue I think this is an important area for journalists, uh, for anybody that wants to uh, promote public messaging. Uh, We have to come to a solution to this. At the the present time, we do not have one. Bill, I don't know what you think about this. It's very frustrating. It it is very frustrating. But one of the problems we run into, which is the case with um, anything about data, is that are the extremes possible? Is it possible that this relative or friend of a relative of Nicki Minaj got the vaccine and then developed a case of testicular swelling? It's not a a known side effect, but is it possible? Yes. We do know that the mumps vaccine, a, a, a documented known side effect of mumps vaccine can be swollen testicles. That's just a fact. So could it be with this? Yes. Does that mean that it's common? Does that mean that it's, it's, it's going to cause danger? It's going to cause any fertility issues? The mumps, or the mumps testicle issues do not cause fertility problems. The mumps disease can cause fertility problems, but not the mumps vaccine. So that's the problem is that people take the outlier and make implications or assumptions that the outlier represents a common occurrence. And that's when you have the 24-7 news cycle and ubiquitous ease of passing of information. Everything that happens anywhere in the world is perceived as a common occurrence everywhere in the world. And that's just not true. So as Fred says, people really need to learn. And I'd say this is something for our education system. People need to be taught about how to understand at least the basic concepts of interpreting information and ideally data. 
Yeah, another, David, one other uh, big rumor uh, that I've heard very often is that the mRNA vaccines, that is the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna, they have RNA that gets into your body and that RNA is going to ruin your body's RNA. What I would point out, if you review the how the virus causes disease in humans, what it does is it gets into the cells and produces masses of viral RNA. So the infection, if you're worried about RNA, you don't want to get this RNA virus infection and therefore the vaccine will reduce your exposure to mRNA. So I, you know, I think that argument needs to be laid to rest. And so, and uh, it was interesting, Bill, as you brought up the issue about the mumps vaccine, the fact of the matter is that we've had that vaccine around for literally generations. Uh, it's a requirement, I think, in most schools. Nobody can go to school unless they've had it. And of course, as you say, both of you have pointed out, we, we're now in a different environment, a news cycle, you know, the ability to reach 20 million people in a single tweet. And so my question to, to you guys is because it's not just getting past this particular virus, but what can we do better? What can we do differently uh, in preparing for the next one? And it seems to me that somebody or some group or some agency has to tackle this disinformation campaign and how to limit the spread of it and possibly even apply liability standards to it, notwithstanding free speech. Um, secondly, uh, at least, and this is informal, anecdotal, the reports I'm getting from many of our business clients is that they, are a, they have been able to achieve a high, high degree of compliance with the vaccine, some reporting 100%. Uh, and they've done this, you know, in ways that have been more more with the carrot than the stick, not the least of which are some of our clients have offered, you know, basically $1,000 per person to get the vaccine. You know, maybe it's just a, a matter of incentivizing them through cash or something of value. That's a great example of, you know, carrot or stick. And you're, you're giving the example of the carrot. We also know there's a, a major airline that used the stick approach. They said that if you don't want to get the vaccine, not only are you going to have to get tested on a regular basis at your expense, but our actuaries say that your health costs are going to go up by X amount, and they're deducting that from the person's paycheck. And I sort of wonder whether one of the lessons learned here around disinformation is there is only so much you can do to educate people. And after that, we, we have to find other means. And whether it's you can't go to work or your insurance goes up or you can't go to school or whatever, or there's a thousand dollars waiting for you. I think this is really one of the important, important lessons that has to be taken away from this. The uh, likely cost of this is becoming uh, more apparent uh, by the day. And I, I'm not sure I, I mentioned to Bill that you know that Idaho and Alaska, both states that have very low vaccination rates, their uh, health systems are now overwhelmed. They cannot manage the volume of cases. So they have instituted what's called crisis standards of care. What that means is if they feel that you are too sick and you are unlikely to survive, 
they will they will uh, send you home with comfort care. So there is beginning to be a rationing of care because of the overloading cases that will re- result in a higher death rate. So I, I think we're we're already getting there in two of our states. If we don't wake up and get the vaccine, uh, this is going to happen in more and more states. And it's very disconcerting to physicians and all healthcare providers uh, to have to tell somebody, I don't have enough time to take care of you. That is a devastating thing. And I hope that this doesn't come to, hap- come to fruition in Florida. Well, I'll just say that um, I I agree completely. I've been following that. Fortunately, I think Florida has taken a step back from the edge. Um, the system that I'm on staff of went from code black, meaning they were doing nothing except critical care, um, essentially throughout the hospitals. It's gone back to it in, in just a, a just over a one week period, all the way back to normal operations um, as the as case counts have decreased. But there are clearly places in the in the United States where we're seeing 50 percent um, week week over week increases in cases still so it's it's another example of what I've uh, mentioned throughout this is that you can't look at this as a global pandemic or even as a national epidemic but you have to look at, at each region and the dynamics of the epidemic in that specific region uh, well, thank you both. Once again, we'll await the government announcement on a third vaccine uh, and how that might be rolled out. And in the interim, uh, just greatly appreciate your staying on top of the data and the lessons that uh, the data provides. So, Bill, Fred, thank you once again. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.